everybody. Welcome to School Psych Podcast. Um, we're extremely uh, excited um, tonight to, to be doing this. And um, our guest, I saw at NASP last year. So I know that um, now we're getting ready for NASP this year. And um, it's it's all come full circle and we're super awesome. Um, it was a great presentation that I caught last year. Um, but I'm, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in the state of Maryland. And I'm going to pass it over to Sue, who is subbing tonight for us, uh, for Rebecca, who's unable to be here. Hey, Sue. Hi. Hi, you guys. I'm Sue Arnpriester. I'm a school psychologist practicing in a suburb of Phoenix. Um, I'm also known as Sincerely School Psychologist. Um, I just wanted to let you know that if you want to participate tonight with questions or comments as we're going along, you can log into Facebook and uh, post your questions to the School Psych Podcast Facebook page, or you can just comment below on the YouTube channel. Um, and we love to have that interaction throughout the hour. Um, I'm going to turn it over here to Eric and let him introduce our guest. All right. Thank you, Sue. We're excited this evening for everyone to join us. We have Dr. Tracy Williams with us. And as Rachel mentioned, she was a presenter at NASP last year. So I love that as we're getting ready to start the NASP conference, we have one of our NASP uh, previous presenters here with us tonight. And so I jokingly on my Twitter feed called this uh, pre-conference PD. So if anyone wants their pre-conference PD, join us tonight. And uh, Dr. Tracy Williams is going to speak to, some, speak to us about some things that are near and dear to us in working with young children with special needs. So uh, I'd like to tell you just a little bit about Dr. Williams. Dr. Tracy Williams is a licensed psychologist specializing in child, adolescent, and family psychology. Also, she's an assistant professor at Emory University. Dr. Tracy has presented to mental health providers, both nationally and internationally, on a broad range of topics related to child development and mental health care access. She utilizes her extensive knowledge to provide clinical services in the Emory University Developmental Progress Clinic, DPC. Working within a multidisciplinary team, she screens for developmental delays and consults on the psychological, psychosocial needs of children, typically between one and five years of age. Previously, uh, previously cared for at Emory University's regional pre perinatal center uh, and their neonatal intensive care units, uh, the NICUs. Um, the patients seen at the DPC are at the highest medical risk for developing long-term disabilities. So, these are kids that we will see in the public schools later on. And as many people remind us, um, early attention and intervention is so important. So Dr. Tracy, welcome. We're excited to have you here and to hear what you have to share with us on supporting these kiddos and working with them and their families. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I am very excited. I love my kids and I love talking about my kids. So I'm glad to be here. We are glad to have you. I know you have a PowerPoint, um, so we'll pull that up and we can kind of go through that, but um, we'll take questions kind of as they come in and um, take it from there. Okay, sounds good. <clears throat> All right, so I'm going to jump right on in. Uh, I usually let people know I have no interests to disclose, um, but just so that you know what we're going to be talking about tonight, I start off with a conversation about preemies and who are they, what do you look like if you're a preemie, um, and then explain how they got here early um, and some of the impacts that you can see as a result of the prematurity. 
I talk a little bit about our clinic and NICU follow-up in general, and then launch into some of the things that you can see in the school system. Um, following that, just a little bit about adolescence and what's going on in early adulthood for preemies. Um, that area is not as robust as the rest because the research is only just now getting into understanding preemies in adolescence. Um, and then I wrap up with just some key points, things to remember, and some very important resources that I think would be helpful for you. So usually when people hear about preemies, this is what they think of. They think of teeny tiny babies who have lots of wires attached to them uh, in incubators. Um, but for me, I actually don't really think about these babies as teeny tiny babies anymore because for me, it's more so like this, where they are older and they're in the schools. Um, as you mentioned, I mostly work with one to five year olds, but even within our clinic, my focus is on the early school years. So most of my children are four, five, six. Uh, so I'm beyond the NICU stage when I think about preemies. And I, I want to encourage people to think about preemies as kids who actually tend to grow up and have needs as they get older. And so that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, so I include my children's drawings in my presentations because they make me happy. And then they also help to remind people that these are kids just like every other kid, but they have their own special needs. Um, so throughout my presentation, I will have pictures from my children uh, that they drew for me or for themselves or their parents in clinic. And usually I ask them if they want to um, have me take pictures. And of course they do because they're interested in cell phones. And then I show them the pictures and they're smiling and they're happy. And I explain to the parents that I include these in conference presentations so that people can understand a little bit more about preemies and they absolutely enjoy it. So this one I think is one of my most recent ones. I got this maybe two, three weeks ago. Um, and this was a three-year-old. She is a twin and they were born at 27 weeks gestation. Um, in the NICU, she had respiratory distress syndrome and I'll talk a little bit about the medical stuff um, there are a lot of acronyms, but I'll go into that. Uh, and when I saw her, the biggest concerns that I had and that her parents had were that she was having behavior outbursts, um, hyperactivity, and some issues with motor coordination. So that's just to give you an idea of who she is. So... When we think about preemies, we don't really think about it happening that often, but it's actually more often than you would realize. It's The current number is one in 10 births um, is a preemie birth. And so that's about 10% of all births. So if you think about your classrooms, 
and you say, okay, 10% of you, then that gives you kind of an idea. Or if you think of your schools as a whole, unfortunately, the rates aren't getting better recently. Um, and there are several reasons for that, but that's beyond the scope of our discussion tonight. Um, another thing to know is the cost of prematurity is very, very high. The average cost is 65,000, and that includes everything from the delivery to special education services down the line. And obviously, the more compromised the child, the higher the costs. So a lot of our um, families have been through a lot financially, uh, and definitely um, our insurance companies need to be paying attention to the long-term implications for this because essentially it is a public health issue uh, and it's one that we have to all pay attention to. So this is another drawing. Um, this is SpongeBob and I really liked um, this one a lot. This was a four-year-old who was actually born at 24 weeks gestation. So really, really early. Um, I think our earliest that we've seen in clinic was 22 weeks, uh, but that's rare. So when this four-year-old was born, he was one and a half pounds and he came early because his heart rate was dropping. Uh, in the NICU, he had brain bleeds. So that's IVH intraventricular hemorrhages. And I'll talk a little bit about that too. Uh, he also had uh, retinopathy of prematurity, which is pretty common for the preemies, and I'll also talk about that. He had PDA, which is an opening in the heart uh, that usually closes by the time term kids are born, but a lot of our children, because they're early, it's not closed. Um, and when he came and I saw him at the time, he was getting physical therapy for cerebral palsy, which is common with IVH, especially with the higher grades. It goes from grade one to grade four. And I'll cover that a little later on. But cognitively, he was doing OK. And the early academic skills were very advanced. So. That's one of the things to remember about the preemies. They may have come early, they may have a lot of medical issues, but they kind of fall along a very wide spectrum in their abilities. I have kids who are very, very compromised and may never walk or may never speak in sentences. And then on the other extreme, I have children who are doing exceptionally well in school and are above grade level and look like every other kid that you would see on the playground. So that's just something to be aware of. So how does prematurity happen? Um, there are many uh, factors that make a, a mother more at risk for having a preemie baby. Certainly if she has had preemies before, she's more likely to have preemies again. Uh, in our clinic, we have a couple of kids who are siblings of preemies, and so they come in kind of as a family and grow up as a family with us. Uh, definitely, if you're having twins, triplets, quads, or more, they're more likely to be born premature. 
So I see a lot of multiples. Uh, there has been an increase in the use of assisted reproductive technology. So IUIs, IVFs for conception. And those are also uh, increasing the risk of having prematurity occur. Um, and then you can see kind of what the, the breakdown on the list is. There are even more factors, uh, particularly with minority women, younger women, as well as older women. So somewhere between in the ideal world in the medical field, you should have your babies in your 20s because you're at the least risk for having any issues. But um, if you're younger than 18, older than 35, definitely the older than 35 crowd, me included, um, is more at risk for having preemies. Uh, and so you can kind of see some of the things that contribute. And then that's why when I say that this is a public health issue, some of these are things that we can address as a society. So like I mentioned, we have um, some kiddos who were very, very early, our earliest being 22 weeks in our clinic, uh, and they would be considered extremely preterm. But prematurity actually occurs before 37 weeks. And so it's kind of broken down by how early did you come? Uh, and as you will see in my presentation, the earlier that the babies are born, the more at risk they are for long-term medical and in general neurodevelopmental issues. So this one uh, is one of my favorites. This is a dragon that I got uh, almost two years ago now. So this kiddo, he was a 27-weeker, and mom had preeclampsia when she was pregnant. Uh, his NICU stay wasn't particularly uh, relevant. He had some feeding issues, and his retina was immature, but nothing particularly outstanding otherwise. Um, so he stayed in there basically until he was able to grow and feed on his own and then go home. When I saw him, he, um, it was his last visit to the clinic and that's when I met him. And at the time his cognitive scores were in the below average to average range. And he did have some fine motor delay. I believe he was getting occupational therapy at school um, and I'm not sure what else he had in his IEP this time, but generally speaking, he was doing well. So some of the common medical issues that you can see, like I told you, there are a lot of acronyms. So I'll walk through some of them. Uh, a lot of our kids have breathing problems because the lungs are not done with developing that usually finalizes in the last trimester. And so a lot of our children have uh, respiratory distress syndrome, which I mentioned earlier. Um, what happens is the lungs are not making enough of that fluid that helps the air sacs to close. And that can lead to um, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, uh, some of our kids have chronic lung disease, uh, asthma. 
So those are very common with preemies. We also have uh, of several cases of neck, necrotizing enterocolitis, which is basically damage to the intestinal tissue. Some of the kids require surgery uh, as babies to remove that part. And it is associated with increased risk for uh, disabilities down the line. ROP, I also mentioned, that's retinopathy of prematurity, and that is pretty common as well. Um, it can improve on its own, and most of our kids that I've seen have improved on their own, uh, and that is also occurring in stages as well, with one being the least, five being the most severe. I have not seen very many four fives, um, but the kids, they tend to have, are wearing glasses. Um, we encourage our parents to get eye exams more frequently than you would with children who were born to term. Um, and it's a regular part of my intake process to ask when the last eye exam was. I talked about PDA as well. Um, that's the part of the heart that did not close. So this kiddo, she was very interesting. She drew this for me, I believe, last year. She was born at 29 weeks. Um, her mom conceived her via IVF, and uh, mom had advanced uh, maternal age. So just like I mentioned in the beginning, you can kind of see how the, the risk factors for prematurity show up in a case like this. Uh, in her NICU stay, she had respiratory distress syndrome, stage 2 ROP. I believe she was actually wearing glasses when I saw her. She had um, significant expressive language delay. And then what was interesting is she comes from a bilingual home. So uh, one of the questions, one of the differentials that you have to determine is the language delayed because she's learning two languages or is it delayed because there's a genuine language issue? And um, so in discussing with her mom, mom realized that she was behind in both English and in mom's native tongue. And so it was determined that it wasn't necessarily because she was in a bilingual home. When I discharged her, she will be following up long-term with the neuropsychology department at the hospital. And a lot of our children do that because we follow the, the kids until they're at least in kindergarten. But uh, what we have learned is they will continue, to, uh, several of our children will continue to have needs long-term. And so somebody needs to be following them. So we have a good relationship with neuropsychology. I like showing this image. Uh, once I discovered it, I, it became one of my favorites for including in any of my talks about prematurity because you could see the difference in the brain, the folds in the brain between the 25-weeker and the term kid. So I explained to my parents that the things that we are seeing are as a result of the brain not having those crucial last few weeks 
for all of the things that needed to be pulled together to happen. Um, so this graphic really drives that point home. So let's talk about the brain for a little bit. Um, if you remember back to grad school, the brain, you have the white matter and the gray matter. The white matter is deeper in and the gray matter is what becomes those folds that I just talked about. And you see injury throughout the brain uh, as a result of prematurity. So um, the white matter, you tend to see the highest risk in the really early kids. Um, and that includes PVL, which I'll, another acronym, which I'll talk about in just a bit. And then in the gray matter, you can also see some uh, delays there that are predictive of future outcome. Um, <clears throat> so this is just to give you an idea of that. So with the brain bleeds, like I mentioned, um, what happens is there is bleeding that occurs around the ventricles of the brain and uh, the the IVH is usually described in grades of severity. So grade one being the least severe, grade four being the most severe. What happens is um, the body tends to reabsorb the blood, but you end up having the damage left to the brain. So on MRI, for instance, with a grade four bleed, you'll see that there's pretty much nothing in that area because it's been damaged, destroyed. Long-term, um, these kids tend to be more at risk for having cerebral palsy, hearing loss, vision problems, learning disabilities, um, difficulties with uh, visual spatial skills, uh, language. There are several things that can happen as a result, particularly with the higher grades, threes and fours. Um, and so that's something that we pay attention to when we're doing our intake. PVL, like I mentioned, that other acronym that I was going to get to, periventricular leukomalacia, it is also linked with several deficits. So in this one, you can see it's a little bit different. There is damage that happens with the white matter, but it shows up as these dots on... Um, on the imaging, or it could be like a, a patch on the imaging. But these children, it tends to happen because of a lack of oxygen or infection that occurred. Um, and this is also linked to some motor difficulties. So these children are actually very interesting. I tend to give the, um, the Beery VMI to my early school kiddos. And these children stand out from the other kids who did not have PVL because they have significant difficulty with copying. Um, and that then translates to significant difficulty learning how to write in school, in the early school years. Um, Generally speaking, what I have seen is my five-year-olds tend to perform somewhere between the three-and-a-half to four-year range on the VMI. 
I also like this draw. I like all of my kids' drawings. Um, this one I got shortly after the Hawaii uh, volcano erupt eruption. And I like it because my kiddo, she uh, tried her best to spell Hawaii, which is very difficult to spell. Um, but she had a pretty significant um, prenatal history mom had had to have some uh, procedures done. When I saw her, she was having some anxiety symptoms and preemies tend to be more at risk for um, not just learning disabilities, but also for mood disorders, um, as well as attention, hyperactivity. And I'll talk about that in a bit. Cognitively, she was doing okay. Academically, she was also doing okay. But as you can see, she did have below average memory and processing speed. So when I saw her, she was six and I was saying goodbye at that point. However, because of the fact that she had those uh, below average performances, this is, a kind, this is the kind of kid that you would still want to keep a close eye on because we don't know what that's going to look like in another year or two or three. Um, she may continue to be just fine and, or she may have severe uh, difficulties in school. So generally speaking, when we think about the preemies um, and research, we think about the fact that the research is looking at these kids as a whole in terms of a cohort. So that makes it difficult for us to figure out exactly what this kid is going to look like walking through the door because they're presented in group data. So just bear that in mind as I talk about the research. Um, but generally speaking, as a group, preemies tend to have lower IQ scores than term kids. Uh, and that is usually estimated to drop about one and a half points per week of birth before 33 weeks. So if you're really, really early, like my 22, 23, 24 weekers, you're more likely to have lower IQ scores than those who were born a little later on. Um, so this is something that we see just pretty much across the board. Processing speed, as I mentioned with that kiddo whose drawing I just showed, that also tends to be slower with the preemies. And from what I have seen, usually in that case, um, generally the verbal and nonverbal scores are just fine. And the only real issue that shows up is the slower processing speed. And so that's a very interesting discrepancy. Um, there was a study that was done and they took a look at the middle childhood age group. And at that point, it was similar to the term kids. So there may be some kind of learning of the skills that you need in order to catch up a little bit in that area. But problems can persist into adulthood as well. 
So like I mentioned, attention tends to get a lot of our attention um, because we see the difference uh, with the premiums, unfortunately. Um, a lot of difficulty across all of the domains of attention. And the earlier that you were born, the more likely that you are to have um, difficulties in this area. So one of the things that we do is, like I mentioned, we refer our kids to neuropsychology who will follow them long-term. And at least here in Georgia, we, um, we have determined that they will get insurance coverage for testing if they were born 27 weeks or earlier. So that's been a help to our families um, because this is definitely something that can have long-term implications for these children. I talked about ROP and PVL earlier when I was covering the medical issues Visual perceptual skills are very, very, uh, are likely to be implicated with the prematurity. And that's very, very common with our children, like I mentioned. Um, so you can kind of see a little bit of a breakdown of what the research says. Memory also pops up. Um, and so in clinic, what we are looking at, particularly before we discharge our children, we're trying to look at all of these domains um, to see if there is anything that we can do to help, particularly in the school uh, setting. So memory also shows up as uh, an area where the preemies are more likely to have delays. And this one article took a look at some seven-year-olds, and even at that point, they were more likely to have memory impairment. This is another pretty recent one that I got. I think I got this in uh, January. So this was a six-year-old, another twin. Uh, we have lots of multiples in our clinic, like I mentioned born at 27, 26 weeks. Um, and so by now you should recognize these acronyms, respiratory distress syndrome and intraventricular hemorrhage, but really just some mild motor concerns, um, clearly mild, cause I could get this really detailed drawing and you can see the eyes and the mouth and all of that stuff. Uh, and then everything else was pretty much within normal limits. Language also tends to be an area that we pay close attention to, particularly, particularly with our early kids where language is beginning to emerge. We want to make sure that we catch any issues that may pop up sooner rather than later. So with our toddlers, we're giving um, the Bailey. And so we're able to determine whether we want to do any early intervention or not, because this is an area where they are more likely to have delays as well. Executive functioning skills is one 
aspect where I am trying my best to figure out how we can determine if there are early emerging issues um, in our four, five, and six-year-olds. And I am more than happy to receive feedback on this because that's a very difficult age to determine. I mean, they're basically at the very beginnings of emerging. So one thing that we do know is the research has shown so far that this also is an area where our kids are more at risk for having difficulties. And I have seen it as well. Um, a lot of our children, particularly the ones who also have difficulties with attention and focus, which makes sense, um, they tend to have difficulty in this area. So um, this is one of the things that we have been paying closer attention to. In terms of how they do academically, uh, just like with every other area, they tend to fall behind the term kids um, with that performance decreasing with their gestational age. So one article took a look at some eight to nine year olds who were very, very tiny uh, when they were born and 65% of them had learning disabilities in comparison to 13% of term kids who did not have any issues when they were born. Um, so in general, these are the children that you are seeing in your schools who need IEPs and have special education services. Like I mentioned, we also see the mood disorders and so on in our children. Uh, we can see it typically sooner than you would with a term child, um, but generally across the board, they tend to be at higher risk for this as well. Some of the things that make them more at risk for it than term kids include some of the things that kept them alive, like uh, the corticosteroids that helped them to be able to grow and develop and be able to go home have actually been linked with later on having these issues. So it's kind of a catch 22 about what we do. And so there are some changes that are taking place in the NICUs. Um, but also the mother-infant attachment that can be disrupted as a result of the prematurity, and that can also lead to long-term psychosocial concerns. Because if you think about it, uh, this baby was growing in mom, and there was a disruption when that baby came early. Um, and then the baby and the mom were separated for several uh, months, in most cases, for our kids at least, um, our kids tend to be in the NICU for two, three, four months. Um, and then you bring a baby home who has a lot of medical needs. So you can see how attachment can be very disorganized in this um, group of children, and that can lead to later issues down the line. We do have 
behavior concerns that are regularly coming up for us um, when we meet in clinic in the uh, afternoon after clinic has been over, we usually talk about which kids had behavior concerns and what our plans were, um, because this is very common even with the really early kiddos. So a little bit about my clinic. I am at Emory University's uh, NICU follow-up clinic, the Developmental Progress Clinic. And this picture is a picture of our director, Dr. Ira Adams Chapman. Um, her research was quoted a little earlier on. So our clinic follows the kids from NICU discharge until they are early school age, and I'm usually seeing them last before they head off. Uh, and our goal is to keep a close eye on their health and development over time. And we give a multidisciplinary approach. So our team has medical staff, both uh, neonatologists, pediatricians, nurses, and then we also have the psychologists, we have a physical therapist, we have a social worker, and everyone kind of pitches in to determine what does this child look like right now? Where are they in comparison to their term pairs? And what do they need moving forward? So the children usually come in once or twice a year and they have um, their evaluations done by all of these specialists and uh, recommendations are made. In this drawing, this was a 27-weeker. She had, uh, she actually was IUGR, which is an acronym we have not seen yet. Um, she was intrauterine growth restricted, so she was small even for her uh, gestational age. She um, had RDS, which I explained can become uh, chronic lung disease and she actually went home on oxygen. So she was discharged from the hospital with oxygen tanks and everything. Um, when I saw her, she had already been diagnosed with cerebral palsy and she continued to have delays in her speech and language as well as her motor skills, of course. Um, and at the time, she had already had an IEP in place, and she was going to be following up with the GI clinic for slow weight gain. And this had been slow since she was in her mom, uh, when her mom was pregnant. And she would also follow up with neuropsychology for all of the other delays as well. I really like this drawing because of her uh, depiction of a giraffe. That is actually a very cute giraffe, in my opinion. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so when we think about the kids in school, um, like I mentioned, they are more likely to have IEPs, uh, 504s as well. And then also we're encouraging our parents very early on, once we see it, to have FBAs completed. Um, that tends not to happen as early as I would like them to. I think that there's a lot of pushback from my parents around having labels. Um, 
And so they tend to wait for behavior issues at school to escalate before they do something at the school level. But that's something that I am working on. Um, So what happens is we make recommendations at our two, two and a half year visit if we determine that the kid is probably going to benefit from school-based services and then they enter a special needs preschool after they've turned three and they're able to access services there. Um, Before that, we here have Babies Can't Wait, which is early intervention services, and they are usually getting those uh, home-based. So prematurity increases the risk of having an IEP at school age. A lot of our children have IEPs. Um, One of my soapboxes is about the, um, the fact that schools are not necessarily educated or equipped to uh, understand the preemies. So that's why I'm spreading the message far and wide. There was a research study that was done a few years ago that uh, assessed teachers' knowledge of preemies. And they also gave the assessment to clinicians as well as uh, school psychologists. And unfortunately, the teachers scored the lowest, and then school psychologists, and then the medical providers. So about 16% of the teachers said that they had had any kind of previous training about preemies, but 90% of them requested more information. So I feel like this is definitely a gap that exists that I would love to see filled. Um, And there are a couple of ways that I'm hoping to do that long-term. When I'm thinking back to, um, like during my internship in Nevada, it was standard practice in that district at least that the the school nurse would sit in on if there was any type of medical history um, that got flagged, um, you know, ADHD, you know, any neurological things of prematurity and whatnot. And I always felt that that was helpful. And since leaving internship, I've not seen another district that does that, that brings the nurse to the IEP table, which is a shame, unless it's like an extreme case where, you know, seizures are the biggest, you know, and the, but for like everyday kind of, not everyday, but the medical issues that we see most frequently don't have the nurse with us, which, you know. I mean, it, it makes sense that you would have a medical provider on staff and for staffing IEPs. I know that the IEPs that I have seen, I have not seen a medical provider involved. Usually they're only involved if the kid has a 504 plan and the 504 is related to medical necessity. Um, But even then it's been maybe one or two So that's definitely something that we're going to need to address. Um, Also, because parents are saying that they are not confident. This uh, uh, research article came out last year and almost 60% of parents who were surveyed, parents of preemies said that they were not confident in their school meeting the child's needs. And that's, that's not okay, in my opinion. So we have work to do there. Um, I like this one because it 
gives us a good idea of what's actually happening in the schools. So this was a research article. It was done in uh, Florida. And they took a look at over a million kids who had been born in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and with the preemies, they tended to have lower standardized test scores, which of course makes sense. Um, and significantly so in comparison to term pairs, particularly the ones who were born very early. Um, but like you can see in the last point, there were gifted students represented across all age groups. And so just like I said in the beginning, my kids tend to fall along a spectrum. Um, and so I can see pretty much anything on every given day. So talking a little bit about uh, the middle school moving into the high school years, the 10 to 15 year olds, this was uh, done in Sweden where a lot of research on the preemies is actually taking place. Uh, and at that age, the really early kiddos continued to have chronic health problems, behavior issues, social concerns, and so on. One of the things that I am hoping that we can get a better idea of is the social development trajectory for preemies. I feel like that's something that has not been paid much attention to. Um, and so even in our clinic, that's a topic that we're having up for discussion very soon. Um, but yes, these kids continue to be more likely to need services even at the 10 to 15 year age range. Um, and then this one also took a look at, uh, I believe it was also in that middle school range and the very tiny kiddos, what they did was they, they did parent report as well as teacher report, as well as self report. Um, and you can see here that they were also at increased risk for these as well. into adulthood, they found um, depression, anxiety, social difficulties continue to be elevated. I know that there was one other research article that I saw about um, adult preemies also being more at risk for substance abuse, which also makes sense. Um, so just in general, thinking beyond the NICU longer term about these uh, children. So in summary, there are a couple kind of takeaways, big takeaways from this. The biggest one being preemies are more likely to access special education services just because of the way in which they came into this world and all of the risks that are associated with prematurity. Another big takeaway is to remember that the earlier the birth, the higher the risk. So taking a thorough birth history, particularly if you're doing evaluations, is very important. Um, I know when I was being trained in grad school uh, and you're being trained on how to do a psychoeducational evaluation. So you ask, okay, were you uh, did your, was your child born at term or preterm? And the mom says preterm. And then you say, 
well, how many weeks pregnant were you? And the mom says, 28 weeks. And then you you move on. In my training, I didn't know what comes after that or what that meant. And so it's important to go beyond that to determine what was the NICU stay like? What were some of the medical issues that your baby had very early on? Were there any uh, brain injuries that you remember being told about? Things like that are really important for us to pay attention to. Um, also rely on your students' medical providers because we have information that you may not have. And I, I wish that there were a better way for us to bridge that gap, like I mentioned earlier. Um, I always encourage trying to understand why things are happening. So this is a real life example from one of my children. Little Johnny is in kindergarten and he's throwing chairs and hitting the teacher and hitting the kids in the class. And little Johnny, unfortunately, got suspended for his behavior. Um, but little Johnny was a 20-something weaker who had a history of emotion regulation issues from the very first uh, stages of life, moving through the toddler years that we saw even before he got to kindergarten. Um, and there were delays that we could have spoken to um, if we had been working with the school. So moving beyond just what the problem behaviors are to understanding why. And when we think about antecedents, yes, this may have contributed right in that moment to the behavior happening, but what led up to it? Um, there are still a lot of things that we do not know about preemies the research, I mean, it's coming out every week. Uh, there's something new that's coming out about school-age preemies. I have a, an alert set on my phone so that I can keep up to date. So that's the good thing. We're learning more and more every uh, day, but there is still a lot that we don't understand. Um, the biggest point that I like to drive home whenever I talk about my kids is that their parents have been through a lot. Uh, and by the time they get to school, they've been through a lot more than you would think, even before they got to you. So in general, particularly with preemie parents, I encourage people to please be kind because they've, they've been through the ringer, a lot of them. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Tracy, I just, I love that last point that you made because um, I really have noticed in working with these parents and in looking at the research too, that moms in particular tend to have a lot of anxiety and even some lasting depression about, um, you know, that just lingers after being through that horrible experience um, with their little babies. And, and I also see some interesting relationships sometimes, um, some attachment issues and things like that. Do you have any tips for helping us help parents and families, any any tips for supporting these parents um, when their kids are a little bit older? I, it's hard to bring up because you don't want to say, you don't want to minimize, you know, what they've been through, but right. sometimes I think sometimes things are exaggerated later because of the early experience, if exactly. that makes sense. 
Yes, yeah. What I usually do, uh, because I see it at the four, five, six year level, and you guys are seeing it later on, um, usually I try to meet them where they are at. So I start off with, you have been through a very traumatic experience. And even at four, five, six, just me saying that can lead to tears um, because they haven't, most of them have not been able to process what happened. Um, the research shows that parents tend to be in survival mode for the first few years of life because of how many medical issues there are and developmental concerns and early intervention and all of this stuff. And then by the time they get to school age, it's kind of like, okay, my kid is here to stay and they look like most other kids around them. And the hope is that once they've kind of stabilized from the early survival skill mode, the hope is that then they may be able to process some of it. Um, but just meeting them where they are at and recognizing what they have been through, that may open the door to have the conversation around what you are seeing that you're concerned about. And sometimes it's that we're not concerned, you know, not that we don't, again, not that we're minimizing those early um, experiences, right. but I, I have noticed that um, sometimes there's just a lot of anxiety around every little um, blip that might come along. Yes. Um, so great, great advice. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely see it too. I mean, we run the gamut. We have a lot of um, permissive parenting because they had a baby who almost didn't make it. Mm -hmm. um, and so they tend to give the baby a lot more things than you typically would. Uh, we have a lot of anxious parents who are very anxious about things that you wouldn't think would cause you to be anxious. And so just kind of meeting them where they are at that helps to begin the process. Um, I had a thought too. I mean, when you described it um, as, you know, going through a traumatic experience um, that kind of, um, you know, struck a chord with me because yeah, I guess I've not thought of it like that before, but it absolutely is. I mean, you're totally just out of your, I mean, everything's disrupted. Everything's a question. Everything's, um, I know that, you know, when my daughter was born, she had, um, you know, silent reflux and it took a long time to figure out what that was and why she was screaming so much and how difficult that was on everybody in my family with, you know, I mean, you have a baby, you don't sleep much <laughs> to begin with, but it was just so intense and not knowing what was wrong and what was going on. And that was <laughs> traumatic for me. And that was reflux. I mean, that was a little, that was nothing compared to, um, I can't imagine. So it definitely, I'm sure it has a lasting impact on the, on the entire family structure. Yeah. I mean, when you stop to think about it, most people have their baby showers maybe a month before the baby comes. So a lot of my kids, the moms didn't even have their baby shower before they had the baby. So that just kind of puts it in perspective. Their whole world ends up turned upside down. And then they're spending a few months going back and forth to the hospital mm -hmm. while also dealing with life um, and not knowing what's going to happen on a day-to-day -day basis. So it is definitely a traumatic experience. And I can imagine if 
there are other siblings then needing to provide adequate social and emotional care and support and um, developmentally appropriate activities um, for them as well can be really challenging. Yes, a lot of stuff gets thrown out the window. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And interestingly, I would think also the, as children especially get a little bit older, like maybe toddler, if they have continued medical needs, that experience of being in the hospital and separated from family becomes very traumatic for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our children come into clinic and our clinic is in the hospital and it looks like a regular medical exam room. And some of our children freak out because they have been poked and prodded since they were born. Mm -hmm. And so just the medical setting itself can be very anxiety provoking. So um, I did want to mention this resource. This is fairly new. Uh, It is UK based. So not all of it is applicable to us here in the United States, but my hope is to have something developed that's similar for us over here on this side of the pond. But it is a a website with modules for education professionals to inform um, teachers and school-based providers about preemies and kind of what to expect and what you can see. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that I passed this on as well. Uh, I call this book my Bible. So it is, it's as big as a Bible and it breaks down prematurity as well as all of the medical um, complications that come from it, as well as some of the long-term implications. And it really speaks to parents So um, this is definitely a resource to have around if you're working with preemies on a regular basis. March of Dimes is a great organization with a lot of information, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics. They have a section on prematurity. Uh, And this is my contact information in case anyone needs to find me. And that's it. Awesome. We'll leave that up for a second before we take it down. (laughs) I know we had some good comments and whatnot going on um, from the audience. Okay. Um, And we've asked, you know, just if anybody has some last minute um, comments or questions before we wrap up. But I mean, I really like how, um, because I was thinking about doing FBAs and whatnot. And my FBAs, uh, when I do a psych report, I tend to, you know, go into the, the medical history, but not so much when I do my FBA, sometimes just for like a gen ed type of situation. And so now I'm thinking, wow, (laughs) that should be something that that probably goes in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably recommending parents ask about BIPs and FBAs maybe once or twice a week. So pretty regularly. So yes, I would encourage that for sure. Yeah, and then um, I think there was some talk before about, so do you recommend, like, I'm trying to think if my school has on their registration, if they have, I know that they ask about, like, developmental milestones when kids are registering for kindergarten and whatnot. Um, I'm not sure if they ask about birth history 
and things of that nature. Um, but do you have any recommendations for, um, I'm assuming that you would think that that, that should be a question to ask right. and kind of follow up questions type of thing anytime. So, as far as I know, parents are not required to disclose. Um, and so that's why for me, it's very important to have the conversation with the parents about what the early days looks like. Mm -hmm. But yes, in, in my ideal world, I would want that to be a question everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking too, I mean, I give parents kind of a developmental history form that they fill out and it has kind of, you know, the standard questions in there and a whole bunch of check boxes of any complications and things mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, for a lot of these parents, this was, it was a long time ago. And yeah. so I think that talking with them and actually asking, like you said, you know, was there any brain bleeds? Was there any injury, you know, right. that type of thing might help to kind of jog their memory a bit. Right. Like if they're filling out a form, um, they might they might miss some stuff or just because it, it's been a while. So. Yeah, yeah. You can also ask questions like, uh, did your child need to see any specialists when they were a baby or a toddler? Um, and that would also give some insight as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I worked, I was, um, I worked uh, for a while at a, at a preschool and would do a lot of the transitions from the early intervention program into kind of our preschool program. And it seemed like so many of them had, you know, prematurity and, and birth difficulties right. and things like that. Um, but yeah, after I left that, I'm not necessarily as, I'm not, I wasn't on the lookout, I guess, for it once you get into elementary school and, and beyond. Um, so I think this was a good reminder for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I don't see any last minute questions, but thank you so, so much for coming and talking. Yeah, yeah. So this good. Important topic. Um, I want to remind people, so NASP is coming up. Um, Eric, do you know when, because you're doing the communications committee presentation, do you, what's, do, how do people yes. find that? Um, so <laughs> Rebecca and Alex Franks and I and Kathy Cowan will be presenting Thursday morning. I think it's called communications, communication matters. And we're focusing on early career, typically early career psychs, uh, but ways to communicate the um, practice model and our roles to, um, have a more comprehensive practice in our our school settings so that's thursday thursday morning i think 9 or 9 30. awesome and i know there's another presentation that looks of interest that people might see us at with um it's called like tweet tweet and it's about twitter and social media and and advocacy and whatnot so we're encouraging people to go to that um at four i think okay um, and then we were also talking about we're trying to do maybe a, a school psych podcast meetup of some sort, or we'll just be, you know, you know us, we'll be tweeting and posting and selfieing and whatnot. So please um, come and find us. And we love to talk to people and um, we love it when people come up to us and just like to hear, you know, where people are at and what's going on. So please uh, come find us. We love it. <laughs> okay. Anything else? Did I forget anything? <laughs> I think that's it. Okay, and I think um, our next episode is gonna be, um, it looks like March 1st with Dr. Canavay yeah. on um, ethics and yeah. measurement and um, you know knowing what your tests do and, and the ethics behind that type of thing. Okay, all right, thank you everybody. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. Thank, that was you. thank you, Dr. Absolutely. Casey. Thank you.